you would agree that I'm not exaggerating when I say I couldn't swim 25 yards at a time. No, I, I really don't think you could do a 25 at, at the first day, at least. I'm past a million total yards swim. So wow. this, this took me a million yards to figure out. I have went from like a 210 per hundred to currently I'm around like a low 130. So it was a descending set starting at 1200 yards, then 1,800, 400, 200, 100. Honestly, I had no idea how I was going to finish it. Hey everyone, welcome to Age Groups of Pro Triathlon Podcast. I'm Kaylee the Pro. And my name is Brian the Age Grouper. Our goal is to help people go from confused to confidence in their first few triathlons. So let's get into today's podcast. We have a fun lineup today. So we'll be talking about becoming more competitive as adult learner swimmers in triathlon. And then we'll dive into some of our camp adventures, the importance of having a deliberate camp for training, for progress, especially working with our coach out in Tucson, Arizona. We'll go through some of your questions and keep submitting those. We appreciate them. And then we'll wrap up today on some of our challenge Roth picks and what's going on in the triathlon scene in the coming weekends. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a fun episode that we have in store. I think that we're, we've been wanting to talk a little bit more about swimming and learning how to do it as an adult. I mean, what we've been doing it about two years now, I think the first time we jumped in a pool about two years ago. Yeah. We started two years and it, it's been a journey to say the least. I can't believe it's been two years. It feels like it's gone by really fast. But I mean, we went from never swimming, literally never swimming to now we can hit over 5,000 yards in a, in a swim workout. So come a long way. Yeah. Quick shout out to one of our favorite female pros, Grace Alexander. She messaged us, let us know that she listens in. So you might just want to skip this part. She won the swim in Chattanooga and is a phenomenal swimmer. I don't think she'll have any interest in this section unless she wants to laugh at us about where we may have started and the progress that we've made so far in the swim. It's a journey. It's really nothing like the bike. It's nothing like the run because you could be as strong as you want. You could muscle it and you still won't see results. There's a lot that goes into learning to swim as an adult. And that's really what we started on about two years ago, right? Yeah, it's it's been the hard the hardest one to to pick up as an adult. I mean, you can't just like grind it out like you can with the other two. It's as we have heard so many times, the feel of the water is what is what you're searching for. But I, I really don't know if you can get that feel as an adult. I mean, you know, obviously you certainly can. You, do you feel like you have the feel of the water now? Well, I think it's something that you develop over time. I think we get so much advice that sometimes it's difficult to to like shuffle through what's useful for us and then what doesn't work for us. And I think it kind of is different. Like what are, what are some of the things that have you like you've learned or taken away from what other people have told you? Yeah, and I think before that, we'll go through some of the best advice we've received and some of the advice that just hasn't worked for us. It would be a good place to start by letting people know where we started. And because you were at a different place than I was two years ago in the pool, where the first time you saw me swim, what what did you notice? 
I mean, I think I've said it before, but that it looked as if it was a joke. <laughs> That's the best way I can say it. I mean, you you got in, you started swimming, and I kind of just was like, ha ha, that's that's funny. Now now you can actually try to swim and and it wasn't a joke. Like that was just that was what you had. So Yeah. It so you would agree that I'm not exaggerating when I say I couldn't swim twenty five yards at a time. No, I, I really don't think you could do a twenty five at, at the first day at least, right? No, definitely not freestyle. Yeah, it was kind of a, a mix of some sort of like if I had to survive in the ocean, I could float, I could doggy paddle, yeah, I could that's a good way to put I it. I wouldn't drown right away. That's that's exactly what it looked like was just like survival to the other side of the pool. Yeah, but in terms of forward progress, efficient forward progress, there that was totally absent. Where I think you were able to swim laps very inefficiently and slowly. Yeah. I for me, I think my background, I did gymnastics for like over 10 years as a kid. So I, I have pretty good body awareness in the water and I had watched videos on how to swim. And so I'm pretty good at watching something and being able to like somewhat translate it. So I think that for me, I was able to pretend swim and it got me back and forth, but it's definitely not the form that like I have now. Right. So I, I wanted to start there just because there's a lot of people who say they could or couldn't swim when they first get into triathlon. But I think it was definitely true that like my first triathlon swim was one of the toughest experiences of my life because I think I had maybe two months of going from that to swimming an Olympic distance triathlon of 1500 meters. Yeah. I mean, I was actually very, I, at the start of that race, I think I was more scared about you racing than I was myself because we, I had swam 1500 before. I swam about 400 yards straight Yeah, before doing my first. So I I honestly was just scared that I was going to get on the bike and I was going to like see sirens or start hearing (laughs) something about someone not making it. And I, I was, yeah, I, I was more nervous about you swimming than, than myself, but yeah. And I had friends and family totally worried about me because they've also seen me ineffectively swim in the past. So it was a real concern. And I just think it's so important to start there because we've made progress. We've had breakthroughs and we're able to first get through a race and then slowly, but surely start to compete in a race through swimming. So one of the messages I want to get across is A, for adult learners, there is hope. And B, you're going to make usually less progress than you want to in a longer amount of time than than you'd hope for. Yeah. And you have to spend things. so much time in the pool. Like it's kind of crazy how much time. I mean, for a normal swimmer, they probably wouldn't think it's a lot of time. But for where we have built, like I feel like I'm swimming all the time now. I mean, not long ago, I had swam for 10 days straight, so. Yeah, and that elusive feel of the water just takes time to build. So why don't we go to tips? Um, You know, the the first and most fundamental tip that you're talking about is if you want to get better at swimming, swim more. 
Yeah. Is what you're saying. Spend more time in the water, which is true. There's no substitute. There's no YouTube video. There's no book to shortcut that. There's not even a drill. Yeah. I it's, mean, first of all, it's probably more. the best tip I've had is just swimming more because with that, I, I, when I first started swimming, I was in the pool once, maybe twice a week. I mean, and that was on a good day. And then as soon as we had started in like August, like, and it was hot and I feel like it's easy to go get in the pool when it's hot. So I was swimming slightly more consistently, but the moment our first race in October came and went and it was the winter months, I, I think in January I got in the pool twice the entire month. So I was spending no time in the pool. Before your pro aspiration Oh, days. yeah. This was like when I was like, oh, triathlon's fun. I'm going to just train and enjoy doing this. So, I mean, and I wasn't good. I wasn't a good swimmer. So it wasn't until I started getting more consistent, which was less than a year ago, actually, that I started consistently going to the pool five times a week. And I have went from like a 210 per 100 to currently I'm around in a race scenario. This is yard, 100 yard. I'm around like a low 130. So. Yeah. And I don't even want to get too caught up with the numbers because your your split's your split. Yeah. A lot of the best swimmers, it's sort of like walking. If you were to ask you or I to describe how do you learn to walk? It's very hard because we didn't have the ability to create memories when we started walking. And the same thing is if you ask a really good swimmer, how do you how do you swim? They don't really know. It's built and ingrained into their their movements. So for us, we're conscious and we're actively developing the neural connections, the neural pathways to say, okay, if I do X, it gives me more propulsion. And the first thing we're really building is a hydrodynamic vessel, something that reduces drag because, and this applies on the bike, but that's more of a, like you can, I always call it pay to win on the bike yeah. where you can just have a more expensive bike with your swim vessel. It's all about reducing drag because water is 800 times more dense than air. So the more hydrodynamic you are, the more efficient you move through the water, you get exponential return per stroke. And I think the very first thing is getting your form to a place where there's less drag, where you're moving forward versus, you know, all those other bad habits. Yeah, which has been something I think I've just more recently decided to pay more attention to. And it's Honestly, you have to slow down to be able to do that. And that's something that is hard to want to do when in your mind, you're like, okay, I got to get faster at this thing. But with swimming, it's almost better to slow down and actually feel where's your hand sitting in front of you when you're going forward. Like, is there resistance down? Is there resistance up? Are you pushing against the, is your hand? In the, I mean, there's just so many things to to feel that you have to do at a slow pace. And I think that I'm actually paying more attention to drills, trying to feel the way the water is like just running through my hands, through my body, you know, is my hips close to the surface? Are they dragging below? And these are just things that are, are really worth taking the time to actually think about and like feel the way the water is moving 
over your body. And the, the loop I like to do is feel and then see and then feel again. So what you're describing is yeah. a feel. And because we're adult learners, we have very poor feel. So when we look at footage of ourselves, especially me, I think I'm doing something. Yeah. And then you see it and you're like, that's not me. <laughs> that's, that's a video of someone else, but it happens to be you. So when you see it, that turns on that connection to say, oh, when I go to breathe, my breathing arm is sinking right to the bottom. It's not staying up and I need to figure out how to fix that. So when you feel, you think you have it right, then you see it and you're not doing it right, then you can go back to feeling Yeah. and it's better. Yeah, that's a really good, a good way to do it. So I think, you know, having someone record or getting a mini tripod that you can set up at the end of the lane um, to at least see you above, which is all really good. Things we've done. Yeah. But the other thing that is more deeply ingrained in some people than others is unwiring human instinct. So if you weren't born in the water, metaphorically speaking, then I think there's an inherent danger wired into us where our mission isn't to swim through the water, it's to stay on top of the water to get oxygen as efficiently as possible. It's to survive in the water, not to move fast through the water. Yeah. So a lot of that for me has been unwiring the process of how do I swim through the water versus survive in the water and not drown? Because yeah. one's much faster than the other. And that just, that takes time too. Because you have, it's the only sport where you're limiting your oxygen supply. Yeah. Which is the most vital thing to human life. It's a very instinctual thing. Like, I mean, there's, there's the component of survival, which I think the other two just, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, it can hurt to do the other two, but you always can feel like, oh, I can just stop trying so hard and you're, you're fine. You can push close to death and then stop. Yeah. And then be like, okay, I'm okay on the track. But it's scary to do that in, yeah, the, pool. in the water. Like if you're doing a, a threshold 50 or even a hundred, I feel like hundreds are worse. Two hundreds. You can feel terrible. Like you are like, okay, I'm going to drown now. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's Th- not there's a, good a different one. number for everyone. Yeah. For me, I could swim a fast hundred pretty much always, but I think instinctually it kicked in when I'd go past a hundred yeah. Yeah, and I would slow hard. down drastically because I was trying to, my form was trying to stay on top of the water. And a tip that I've almost never heard, I'm sure it's come up, but the biggest thing as an adult learner for me was learning to control my oxygen diaphragmatically, if that's a word. It was being relaxed with my breathing because it's a rhythm. I mean, yeah. the breath is a rhythm that you have to learn to swim with. And I, I think really good swimmers, they don't know what they're doing. Maybe they know what they're doing with their breath. But they're not panicking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's something you have to play around with because I've yeah. actually been playing around with the timing of breathing out, mm-hmm. which sounds weird because, I mean, if you were to, if somebody asked you, like, when do you breathe out on your stroke? I mean, most people probably wouldn't be able to answer that because, I mean, even now I couldn't tell you that well when I do it, but it is something I've been playing around with. And I think it's helping me learn better breath control. I can, like you're saying, stay less like on top. I'm more moving forward. Um, yeah. 
And for me, it's been the feeling of what's that feeling when you hyperventilate? Yeah. Like the hypoxic. Not just hypoxic, right? That's holding your breath. Oh, but the the actual hyperventilation. Hyperventilation, I think, kicks in. So let's say 100% is your lungs are totally full or you're, and that's 100%. That's when, when you start taking in a hundred percent oxygen, that's when your body's like, I'm at, I'm at the limit. Yeah. And you start doing that every stroke. If your stroke rate's 60 or 70 strokes per minute, your body thinks it's hyperventilating. Yeah. You have to like take in what? 70% of that. I noticed that if I just took in slightly less, I was teaching my body that it's okay. Like you're not maxing out your oxygen intake and you're not taking it into the max. And I've applied this on the track in my running where I don't max out my lungs right away because if I get to that point too soon, my body's almost like it gets scared and it backs down. So especially in the water, breath control has been such a huge component because it's affecting buoyancy. It's affecting body position, but not maxing out my lungs, just having a really controlled rhythmic breath, which took me a year, by the way. I mean, I've tracked my meters and yards and I'm past a million total yards swam. So this, this took me a million yards to figure out, but these are the little things that I think we can describe that we've had to learn where, you know, we've talked to Olympic trials qualifiers. We've talked to Olympians and, and everything in between. They've been good for so long. They don't have to think about this stuff. Yeah, it's it's just the small things that I think are actually pretty easy to work into your routine of, like you said, learning more about your breath, like practice breathing out at different times, practice taking in different amounts of air. And like that's, you know, so easy to do on your simple like 50, like do a 50 meter and just play around with it. Um, And you're not changing anything dramatically, but it actually will translate into how you can work on form and other aspects. Um, That is such a good point because once you get relaxed in the water, then you can think in the water. Yeah. Before that it's survival. Yeah. And, and nothing good is happening. I mean, I was using one arm for like a whole year, you know, my, my breathing arm would drop and I was doing all the pulling with my right arm. Imagine having two arms versus one. Yeah, and since then you've had a a pretty big breakthrough, I would say, in your swim. And again, this is all just from simple, just learning how to breathe and how how to like move through the water a little bit more. And I think the theme of unwiring the the survival instinct of swimming for for us has been pretty big. Yeah, and luckily I was as bad as you could be. So I think I have a lot of perspective going from as bad as you can be to working my way to being still bad, but making progress. Yeah. So I'm, I'm grateful for that, at least from a sharing perspective. Do you have any major breakthroughs that you remember or ways of thinking about swimming that are unique to you? Um, I would say one of the biggest breakthroughs I've had in swimming was actually from a really like simple tip of just keeping my elbow higher, which I think that that tip, the reason it was such a big impact for me is because I had a lot of things going wrong 
that was keeping my elbow like dropping in so many different parts of the the stroke that the simple thought of like, okay, when I'm pulling my arm, imagine my elbow as high up as I can just like turned. It made my turnover faster. It made my catch better. And I think it even made the pull through better for me. So it just like corrected a lot of things. And it was just such a simple like, hey, your elbows looks low, like keep it higher. And this was a tip from your friend Madison. Yeah, it was a a local triathlete who is also she's around my age and goes to UGA. So and I was so frustrated after that tip because we were swimming similar paces. Yeah. And then the next day, like you were 10 seconds per hundred faster than me. Yeah, it was. And I haven't caught you since. And it was even I, I mean, as the tip as well as just watching her swim. Like I I saw, I watched her. And again, I'm someone who, if I can see something, I can usually do it. Like I'm lucky that way. So I just kind of watched her swim as I was swimming and try to kind of mimic what she was doing. And yeah, watch people with similar physiques to you because Madison and you are built similarly. And people have seen her in the pool and thought they're like, oh, I saw you swimming. And I was like, thanks for the compliment. But that wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think having like that's a really good, good. Tip yeah, whereas if I watch her or Kaylee swim, it's like, OK, I have <laughs> 30 to 40 pounds of extra muscle and less mobility and flexibility. My stroke needs to look a little different Yeah. to be as effective. So watching someone who's similar in that regard, I could probably have more takeaways than watching you. Yeah. But High elbow. The frustrating thing about high elbow is I think that's the most common tip anyone's yeah, ever heard. Yeah, it is. It really is. But it's it's dynamic. Like it's good f- because you know maybe yeah your elbow is just too low and you're not holding water, but it gets water on your forearm, but it also gets water on your inner bicep, in inner arm right here. Yeah. Because if it's between your bicep and tricep, yeah, it, it allows you to use your lat versus your shoulder. Yeah. It engages your core more, but it's a total feel thing. Yeah. And it even it surprisingly moves your hips more like to where they need to be too. Yeah. So it's just like, it's a tip that I wouldn't necessarily give to people because I think it's like you're saying, it's just like so complex and it's hard to even do. Like I wasn't even, I thought my elbow was up for a long time until I saw a video. It was like, okay, my elbow is nowhere near where it needs to be. So, and high doesn't mean, so in most sports that we do, it's, we'll call it calculus one. There's two dimensions. There's the X and the Y axis. You're moving forward. The goal is to move forward. Yeah. Swimming adds a Z dimension. It's like calc three calc two has the z axis or calc three three is where it really kicks in so so. swimming has a z axis where there's now depth and then a lateral movement so that's really what a high elbow means it's not necessarily high on the up and down it's also just a positional thing in the depth of the water like a rotational thing yeah because for me a high elbow in order to get that position I have less flexibility. So the way I learned to get it was actually to spear the water a bit deeper and grip the water at a deeper level versus closer to the surface. So my elbow is not close to the surface, but it's still considered a high elbow catch in that diamond position. Yeah. Especially with my non-breathing arm. With my breathing arm, it's a work in progress. Yeah. So there's just so many. I mean, 
I, I would say that the high elbows, because I was going to ask, like, what has there been any tips that you have not liked or like you just were like, yeah, this was not good advice. There's been plenty. But the one I want to highlight before we get there is the tip of you think you're aerobically fit in the water, but you're not like aerobic conditioning applies to the sport that you do. And just because you have really dense mitochondria in your legs and like you're super efficient on the bike, you know, I I know runners who can smoke me in the run, but you give them a bike, (laughs) they're gone, you know, in two miles, they can't. And I noticed this in crew a lot with rowing where we had some really talent. We had, you know, nationally ranked runners in my high school, but you stuck them on a rowing machine and they couldn't hold the split we would race at for a minute. Yeah. They would be totally lactic. So the biggest tip is even if you're not swimming efficiently, still work to build cardiovascular fitness in the water because once you get relaxed, once you hit that point where, okay, I have breath control and I, I can feel more comfortable in the water. Then you start thinking more. So the yeah. big tip is even if you're not swimming perfectly, you still need to be doing main sets. You still need to be doing workouts. Which is also a, something we've had counter advice on where people have said that once your form starts falling apart, in longer sets that that's bad because then you are going to build bad habits of bad form, which I do think there's probably a fine line of, yes, we, we can't go out and swim AK. Like that's going to probably be something ridiculous and everyone's going to have something that's too much at whatever point they are at in their swim progress. But I do think that it's good to get to that point to where your fatigue and your form is is falling apart and doing like pushing through that on specific days that are meant to be for a long aerobic work in the pool. Yeah. And we'll share our our biggest aerobic set during our camp segment here. It's pretty massive. I've heard age groupers say they won't do 400 repeats. and. I mean, I wish we were doing just 400 repeats, but um, yeah, so I just, I don't want people to overlook that. So that's a double-edged sword where I think you asked what bad advice is. I think bad advice is just doing form work without yeah. main sets. What's a piece of advice that hasn't worked for you? I think like anytime people talk about the catch, like I just, I think that for a long time, what we thought was a catch wasn't even what somebody else tried to explain to us was the catch, which was something that somebody else wasn't the catch. Like, I just think everyone has a different idea, definition of what they think the catch is. And so I just like could never really listen to what people had to say when they're like, at this point in the catch, this is where your, your hand should be, your elbow should be. And it's just like, it just never translated for me. And I mean, maybe for other people, they, they have a better idea or maybe if they're only listening to one person and going through the stroke with them, the catch is an easier term, but you just like, can't listen to that when you are hearing it from 10 different coaches. Yeah. And the catch is really a hold. Yeah. Like it's when you finally feel like you're holding water and then moving yourself past that grip and hold. 
And it took me a while to get that feel in the first place because it's like, oh, you're not catching the water. You're just moving your arm down. Yeah. Or, or even like where your entry, because some people even start the catch from the entry, which is also like, I mean, it's just, yeah, I just have never liked that one. Yeah. It's, it's tough because if you're a beginner swimmer, you're not catching at all. <laughs> really? I mean. And so just, everyone slipping, wants to tell right? you about it. Like, so it's definitely an intermediate thing that starts to develop. And these are all things that you can have on your mind, but just keep chipping away because all of these other adaptations and progresses are happening along the way. So, yeah, I think the catch is a good one. Some of the things that really messed me up for a while is I thought my hand going too deep was a bad thing. Yeah. And then we worked with a really, I mean, probably the top stroke technician in Tucson during our camp, Glenn Mills. And this is out of Phoenix, actually. Oh, yeah. He's out of, right, Scottsdale. Um, But we did drills with him and he's like, okay, now deeper. And then I was like, wow, that's deep. And he's like, nope, deeper. And I was like, wow, that's really deep. And then he's like, okay, now put, make sure your hand is under you like totally under you when you're pulling. And once we over-exaggerated that and then went back to our normal strokes, I have been 10 seconds per hundred faster since that one change. And the reason is, is because before I was trying to glide out and be smooth, but I was really just putting on the brakes with my hand, almost like saying stop, right? Like I glide out and reach but then I'd put on the brakes. Stopping or either pushing up. Right. Or pushing down with your hand, which in turn was pushing your body up and out of the water. Right. So I've, I've heard people say, you know, keep your entry close to the surface, reach out. Whereas reaching deep and spearing down has shaved a ton of time for me yeah. without any extra effort. Yeah. No, it was a very helpful tip. So. Yeah. So. Let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk and we'll go if, if you go if you like the adult swim learning segment, let us know. We could talk swimming all day. That was the tip of the iceberg for things I've learned. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm happy to ramble about it. But let's shift gears to our Tucson, Arizona camp. Yeah, Where do you want to start with kinda, that? I mean, honestly, a smooth transition into it is kind of Like what was our first big workout? I mean, I think going over the workouts that we, we did there and I would also like to have a little fun with it and just kind of, what was your favorite workout? And then what was like the worst one for you? But yeah, well, it was seven days of training and in that seven days we hit almost 26 hours. Yes. So it was a big week. The biggest week, volume week for me. For both of us, hands down. So it included a six-hour bike ride, over two-hour swim. Uh, Our runs are always massive, so nothing special there. Um, But just consistent volume and fatigue and working really hard on some serious workouts. The day one, we arrived for our first workout on Memorial Day. So we show up to the pool and it was closed. Yeah, we didn't even... I mean, we didn't even think about the fact that it was Memorial Day and that places might be closed, but... So we show up and we have to shift our swim to, I think it was 4.30 or 5 p.m. Yeah, it was supposed to be at 9 a.m. and it ended up being at 4. Because we found lanes like 30 minutes away at a different pool. 
But that was like we started our swim 8 p.m. our time. So biologically, we were. Yeah, it was like ready to 7, go to 8 sleep. o'clock p.m. <laughs> for Georgia time. And we were hopping into a pool and it was we were exhausted because we had also just traveled the day before. We lifted earlier that day. Yep. So it, we were not fresh going into this. And I mean, how many meters did we swim? I mean, it must have been 6K, right? I think it I think it was closer to 54. Right. So talk about the main set. What, yeah, what you, it was. You started at what? So it was a descending set of starting at 1,200 yards, then 1,800, 400, 200, 100. And we, I had never, I've done descending starting at one, but adding that extra 1200 on top of it was just like, honestly, I had no idea how I was going to finish it. I mean, it was so long. And then my coach decided to throw in, I am not a bilateral breather. So he threw in some bilateral breathing on top of it to where I was breathing every like third to either side. And so it just made it even harder. It was it was the hardest swim for me. Yeah. I mean, we started, like I said, at a time we're normally getting ready to go to bed after a hard lift. And um, yeah, he threw in like, okay, you're going to do flip turns for this set. And then you're only going to breathe to your bad side. And then you're only going to bilateral breathe. So it was a really tough it was brutal. Yeah, it was. I, that was <laughs> the only upside was I love swimming outside and we do not get to swim outside here because our pools are inside, which is weird for Georgia. I mean, it's warm most of the years, but it was outside. There was some mountains that were kind of the backdrop, which were just absolutely beautiful. So it was, I mean, as beautiful of a swim as you could ask for, but it felt like it was never going to end. Yeah, so our toughest workout, shifting gears, was, I I would say we would both agree on it. Yeah, that was like my least favorite for sure, but. So your toughest was your least favorite? No, it wasn't my toughest. It was just my least favorite. Oh, the swim? Yeah. Oh, I was shifting gears. So our toughest workout was what? Oh, the the day, the next day. Mm Mm-mm. Oh, you're saying, oh, when we climbed. Mount I would say Lemon. Mount Lemon. Okay. It's, yeah. There's, okay. I'm not trying to build anticipation here. We're just not on the same page. So yeah. I would say Mount Lemon was a six, it was a six hour yeah. day on the bike. And it, it was climbing Mount Lemon. So I would have to say that that was probably our toughest day. Yeah. That one was the, the toughest for a lot of reasons. I think, though, it was climbing Mount Lemon was kind of a bucket list triathlete thing to do. So it was one of my like favorite. It, it was a lot of fun because, I mean, I've always wanted to do it, but it was, I mean, it was as hard as I could have imagined it being. It was just what well, I think it took us two hours. The yeah, climb itself. Yeah, yeah, we we left out around six in the morning from where we were staying in our Airbnb. It took us about an hour to get to kind of the road that leads up to it. Um, and then it was another two-ish hours to get to the top. So we were close to three and a half, I think, by the end. At the top, we got a cup of coffee, bathroom break. And then as hard as going up was, I think the worst part of that ride for me was going down. I love descending. I think I hit 
49 miles an hour. Brian was flying. Like I dusted you. He yeah. came by me in arrow position at one point, and I was just, I'm holding on. My, like, knuckles are turning white. The I, funniest like, part <laughs> is your heart rate was the same going up as it was coming down, and you were only pushing, like, 50 watts average. Yeah, I think down. it was, like, 50 a- average watts, but my heart rate was, like, 170. Whereas my pedals died. I was having some PR numbers that day. And then my pedals died like a quarter of the way into the climb. So I just went based on feel. Yeah, it, it was it was beautiful, though. I mean, the landscape there is just the complete opposite of Georgia. So you really got to experience it going up the mountain, starting at kind of the the hot, dry, humid of the bottom. As you're climbing, there were the giant cacti, which I think is so cool because I mean, you just don't see that around mm-hmm. here. The cigarro cactuses. Yeah, I mean, they're huge and they were blooming at the time. So they had these little like beautiful flowers on top. And what's cool is when you hit a certain altitude, because you do hit over 8,500 feet on that climb. So it gets tougher as you go higher. Yeah. They cut off immediately. Like a, they can only grow at a certain altitude line and then boom, you can see it. The, the landscape shifts. Yeah, entirely. just completely. It becomes more rocky, a little bit less. Um, plants but then you even eventually get to a point where i mean there are pine trees there were yeah. it was almost like in a forest where it was kind of cool and i don't it was just very beautiful i mean it was hard to enjoy it as you're climbing for over 2 hours but it was if you took the time to look around it was actually very beautiful and i think and it was our, nice our coach Ryan Bolton was literally an olympian i mean he was in the first triathlon olympics of 2000 yeah but also has stayed in shape. He's able to hang on to the wheels of current Olympians in their bike workouts. So by extension, he he took us out fast. I mean, I thought my bike was broken. Remember at yeah, the beginning of that? The very beginning. It was yeah. Brian pulled us over because he was like, I think my brakes are they're on. They're on my wheels. I was <laughs> getting dropped at 300 watts to start the ride in aero position while he's on a road bike. So Biking with Ryan Bolton is uh, is a journey in and of itself. He is the real deal yeah. for his age. So yeah, he kicks our butts. But it was it was a beautiful ride and um, great experience. And I mean, even the descent was ultimately good for me. And I would say a big step forward in my my biking career because I've never done a descent like that. So it and this was, this wasn't on fresh legs. Like we this was late into our week. Yeah, this was on Friday, and we got there on Monday. So. We did ten by eight hundred meter hill repeats up a mountain. Yeah. Before. Yeah, the day before we had a, as a and it came out to be an over ten mile uh, workout of climbing a hill. I think it was like over twelve hundred feet of elevation that and then day. We did Gates Pass hill repeats yeah, on the bike before that. Gates Pass hill repeats, which with at low cadence, which was actually a really hard day. We did three of those, so it was about ten minutes each. Um, low cadence around fifty five, and I hit peak power performances on that one. So our legs were were not fresh for going into Friday. No, so that was my least favorite. Your least favorite was the swim workout. Yeah, that yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was a really big camp, lots of diverse food in Tucson. So that was fun. 
Yeah, it was it was really great food there. And then we also got some good technique work in, like we were saying, with uh, Glenn Mills out of Phoenix. We were doing some hour, two hour sessions there, actually, in an endless pool and ended up in a, a regular pool, too, which I think was very beneficial for us, uh, as well as we got new bike fits, which has completely improved the way I'm feeling on the bike. And my hip is just so much better. So, I mean, as along with the really big training, we also got some really good just like technique work and then just like improvements all around on our equipment. So, yeah, I mean, just to focus on just triathlon for a week, even though that's like my type of work vacation, it wasn't a vacation per se, but it, it was really effective for our racing and progress going forward. So I totally recommend it if your training group does something like that. Yeah, if you're really into triathlon and even if you're an age grouper, I think finding a camp as like a way to do a vacation can actually be a lot of fun. I mean, we as much as it was a lot of work, there was also a lot of time in between of just sitting there and laying down and relaxing, which was like a a nice combination and just fun to kind of to live the life of. I, what you would imagine a professional athlete would have. And it was an, a small insight to what could be my future. So it was fun. Yeah. And who knows, maybe we'll be able to host a triathlon camp in Georgia one day. Yeah. That would be- We've always joked about it. We we have a nice house, uh, two extra bedrooms and great places to bike, great swimming facilities and pretty fun running courses too. And we're like, we should just host athletes out of our house and ho- have camps, but you know, we'll see maybe one day. Yeah. But that kind of transitions pretty well into uh, a question we got uh, that I wanted to hit. I know we're running a little out of time, so we'll just do this one today, but somebody asked me on Instagram about training with running and how do you not Or how do you prevent knee slash IT band type injuries? And I actually thought this was a great, great question because Brian is, I mean, he has had this struggle pretty, pretty early on in his running career. And I think you've done a lot of really cool, um, you've learned a lot on how to like rehab it yourself and things that have helped you to, to work through the injury and as well as prevent it from happening again. So I thought we could touch on a few of those, but when was the first, like, what was the first thing that caused your, your knee IT band type? I had one in each leg. So my left one was from the four by four by 48 challenge with David Goggins. So I did four miles every four hours for 48 straight hours, which adds up to 48 miles. And after that, I mean, I just couldn't even walk. It was so flared up. And then the second time was when training was really ramping up with triathlon, and that was in my right IT band. The commonality for almost everybody is you're running more than your body can handle from a mileage and volume perspective, and your body's flaring up, and it's, it's mad about it for one reason or another, whether it's mobility or just it's, yeah, you're not strong enough to handle it. As a pure runner, because I started out as a quote unquote pure runner, we were just training for running. Yep. It's frustrating and it feels like the end of the world. Yeah, because you have nothing else. 
And and you can't really run through this. No. It's not something that... Not well. Yeah. I did both times. But the as a triathlete, it's such a solvable issue because I'm the fastest I've ever been in running, running less miles than I was doing when I was just running. And that's because you're building such a strong aerobic base from swimming and biking that you have the ability to lower your volume in the run and still not just maintain speed, but unless you're already a peak 15 minute 5k or 14 minute 5k, you'll keep building toward that. And just for reference, my mileage varies from 28 miles to 37 miles on a weekly basis right now. Yeah. So that's more key long runs and then a key track session weekly, but then very light runs for the rest of the week because my aerobic base is built through cycling and swimming. Yeah, no, it's definitely, it's an overuse injury. I mean, that's just what it comes down to. And it's something that the swim and the bike will not call like further, further the issue. So you can, lower your running miles while increasing the other two or even just staying the same that you will not affect your your overall fitness which like you're saying with running like when you had this injury with running you weren't able to run I think for like two or three months after well so I lowered my volume this happened to me last year for uh, 70.3 Blue Ridge right before so I ran through that half Ironman with an IT band injury And my mileage went from like the mileage I said to around 12 miles of running per week. So I just dropped the volume on my run and maintained or built the volume in my swim and bike until the pain went away. So from a training perspective, that's what I did in order to rehab it from that perspective. Yeah. So the the decrease of your volume and then on top of that, you will need to make sure you're you're figuring out where that imbalance is. And so I think getting some bands, like the small, you can do both. I would recommend both. You can get the small ones that you can kind of just put around your ankles and then do a lot of just like hip exercises. And then you can also get the longer like monster type bands and you can use like a bed post and wrap it around and do like abductors, adductors kind of exercises just to start really working the glutes. Um, I think even you could do some stuff at the gym with like lower, your lower back, just like kind of working on those muscles in that area and and getting the little stabilizers strengthened. But what Kaylee's alluding to is there's a lot of reasons it could be caused. It's not just one reason. It could yeah. be lack of mobility. It could be lack of strength. So for me... And this is where most IT band problems originate. The IT band attaches near the hip. It's all the way up in that glute region above the femur bone. In yeah, that, like in the that, iliac crest yeah. of, of your hip. So even though it hurt at the knee, I had to foam roll and massage at the hip daily in order to first loosen it because that allowed it to relax a little. So it could heal. And then from there, the reason it was happening is because my glute meads were weaker than everything else. I mean, my quads are so much overdeveloped from rowing, but my glute meads are underdeveloped. So for me, 
doing those band exercises really helped. And then also bulletproofing from the ground up. So usually it's caused from running and building up my, my tibialis, my shin bone uh, muscles essentially by doing just, um, raises on the wall yeah, like calf raises and yeah stuff. but the other side of it yeah, so like, yeah my heels would be planted and i would raise my toes so i'd do three sets of 25 a few times a week bulletproofing starting lower and then working my way up were ways that i have prevented this from flaring up again in the future yeah i think that's like really great advice so just pretty much Figuring out those exercises to kind of to build where there may be some weak stabilizers and then decreasing mileage if you have it. And on the other side, preventing it from happening, you want to slowly increase when you're building into to running because it's, I mean, a pretty common injury. And it's like you said, it's always some there's usually a reason why it happened and just kind of preventing that for me. The time it happened to uh, to me was when I got into steeplechase season um, and just adding that jump over hurdles uh, really flared up my IT band. And I ended up getting a lot of just like working with athletic trainers because this was while I was in college. So, I mean, if you have access to athletic trainers or PTs, you know, that's always great, too. I think that they can give you some really great exercises as well as like accountability of showing up. So. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can train through it. It it hurts and it's going to hurt even when it's better. You can start building up volume very slowly over time. But um, prevention is absolutely the best piece. And strength training twice a week for us has just been, knock on wood, amazing for injury prevention. I mean, we've been of course we have our tweaks and things like that, but we've been pretty rock yeah. solid in terms of that. And on my pedal stroke, you can see my femur rotates because my quad's powerful and that overextends the IT band. Yeah, so that's, knee. that's where that glute stabilizes that. So, you know, by building up the glute needs to stabilize that femur over rotation and then by extension, the IT band stretching, that's what solved it or has been helping me along with the other components. So food for thought. And I hope that helps somebody out there if they're trying to rehab their IT band because it sucks. Or preventing (laughs) it, either one. Well, yeah, for those who don't have the pain right now, yeah, yeah, but want to ramp up the run miles um, because we're, we we can really dial up the run miles and still be healthy. We're pretty, pretty bulletproofed. Yeah, I would agree. So wrapping up, let's talk about this week in triathlon. Why don't we start off with Challenge Roth? Challenge Roth is a full distance Ironman, but not the Ironman brand. Really popular race in Germany with some heavy hitter names. Yeah, racing. this is, I would say, a, a bucket list race for a lot of uh, athletes. It's supposed to be a beautiful course, amazing um, cheering and just like uh, people out there. So, yeah. Some Tour de France moments with the yeah, crowd. Yeah, it's, it's a big one. It's a really big yeah. race. So some of the notables, this doesn't include everybody, but for the guy's side, there's Magnus Ditlev, Sam Laidlow, Joe Skipper, Patrick Langa, Daniel Bakegaard, Ben Canute, and Sebastian Keenlay. On the male side, who do you have As to my, win? My, my winner. Okay, so 
I I really think Magnus is going to take it again this year. I think he's strong, and I I just I, that's my pick. I really think he'll 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 take the win. Yeah, it's tough to bet against Magnus. I mean, it's definitely a bike centric course, and it seems that Magnus right now can do things on the bike that nobody else can do. Yeah, but you have to ask if there's a swim pack that is ahead of Magnus and people work together to keep the gap on him, or at least make him work to catch up. Laidlow will definitely, if Laidlow's healthy. That's true. He can come out of the water first. Yeah. I mean, and they have been Canute out there this, this right. year and he is a very strong, notorious swimmer. So I think Ben and Sam will work to gap Magnus in the swim. And then who outbiked Magnus in Kona? That's true. Sam Laidlow. Yeah. I mean, I think Sam Laidlow, if he's if he's on, he could definitely win. Well, you already picked Magnus. I, 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 I will <laughs> pick him as third. Then who's second? I think that uh, Patrick Lang is okay. going to come second. If there's somebody who has a weapon in the run, it's Patrick Lang. Yeah. Because... Magnus is an all-rounder. I mean, he it's not like he's bad in the run. Sam Laidlow, that's where he tends to fall apart. If he does, it's yeah. in the run. So I think, yeah, him or Joe Skipper. Joe Skipper is absolutely a weapon for the podium. I have Sam Laidlow as first. Okay. So just to make it fun because you already picked Magnus. So that's our thoughts on the guy's side. On the girl's side, we have Annie Hogg, Chelsea Sodaro, Daniela Reef, Laura Phillip, Fenella Langridge and Lisa Norden. So also a competitive field, some top 10 names there. Really strong people over the full distance. Yeah. I mean, I'm again, I, I'm going with last year's winner, Ann Hogg. I mean, she crushed it at the PTO European Open and she just seems to be in really, really great form. So, I mean, yeah, I think she's going to take the win again this year. Yeah, you, you get to pick first, so you're making this easier. You can pick the same. You can pick the same as me. So. Of course I wouldn't do that. That's no fun. But I think that while we saw a dominant performance for Annie Hogg at Ibiza, she probably peaked for that race. And there's some really strong cyclists in that lineup, notably Daniela Reef. And I think she's had some bad luck in terms of health showing up at these races. But if her bike legs are on... I think that she could have a sufficient enough gap to hold off Annie Hogg because Annie Hogg is fastest over the half distance. Yeah. Whereas in the full distance, I don't think she's run to her potential in the full marathon. Not her potential. Maybe I, once I or twice, but yeah. oftentimes you'll see mid 250s. Yeah. So I, I actually think if Daniela Reef's healthy, she has something to prove. So that's that's your first pick. I think yeah. One. I I would pick her. Who would you finish out your podium with? Um, Annie Hogg is second, and then Laura Phillips just strong all around, and she's been laying low. She yeah. hasn't been racing that much, so I think she's targeting this race. Yeah, so. I was I was actually going to put her as my yeah. second. Number I think two. She, yeah, I think she'll be in good form. And then Danielle Reef, I think, will be third. It's my 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 top three. Yeah. So but besides that, I mean, everybody uh, can go out and watch Montreal, the WTCS race, which will be on Saturday. 
I'm personally really excited to watch it. Um, and then I have to be biased and say my race. I don't, I'm not sure if there'll be live coverage, but definitely track me. Um, this will be Montre Blanc on Sunday and I think it's Eastern time. So starting at 6.55 AM. So I'm yeah. excited. Some really fun racing this weekend between ITU and Montreal's a fun format. It's not typical, right? It's like the super sprint. Sort yes. of, there's waves and rounds and stuff like that. It's a short. It's, I know it's sprint. I, yeah. I'm not sure the, the exact form, but it's going to be a sprint distance, which doesn't take too much time and is a lot of fun to watch. Very yeah. competitive. Lots of sprint finishes usually. So. And then Roth is Sunday. Yep. So Roth will be the same day as me. Yep. And then Montreal. Very cool. Well... As always, give us a like, give us a subscribe. We, uh, we'd love to hear that you're watching. So shoot us a message on Instagram. I mean, you know, you don't have to be a pro to be watching, but we appreciate Grace listening in while she's doing her intense training blocks. So love the compliments. Yeah, we appreciate everyone listening. Ask some future questions. Yeah, we'll catch, catch you next you time. Thanks, everybody.